Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. My name is N.A. Mansour Nadira. I am a graduate student at Princeton's Department of Near Eastern Studies. And my guest today is Eve Krakowski, who is Assistant Professor of Near Eastern Studies um, and is also in the program in Judaic Studies at Princeton University. She's a social historian of the medieval Middle East, interested especially in family life and how law and religion worked in mundane, everyday settings. Her research focuses on urban Jews and Fatimid and Ayyubid Egypt, a population who accidentally left behind some of the most detailed and varied sources about ordinary life to survive the pre-modern world, the Cairo Geniza documents. She earned her BA, BA, MA, and PhD at the University of Chicago's Near Eastern Languages and Cultures Department. And before going to Princeton, she spent two years uh, as a postdoctoral fellow in the program Judaic Studies at Yale University, and then one year as a postdoc in the Institute for Israel and Jewish Studies at Columbia University. So she has held an ACLS grant, an NEH grant, uh, both with Marina Rousteau. She is the author of many articles out in Jewish history and Jewish social studies, amongst others. And her first book, which we'll be discussing today, is out 2017 from Princeton University Press. It's called Coming of Age, Medieval Egypt, Women's Adolescence, Jewish Law, and Ordinary Culture. And it won the 2017 National Jewish Book Award in Women's Studies. And it was a finalist for the 2017 National Jewish Book Award in Scholarship. So welcome. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be talking to you. And I want to thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm excited. No, I've been really excited to have you. You're easily one of the most accomplished people I know. And this book is just so gorgeous. I think I told you once that the footnotes were so beautiful because they're so packed and dense with information. (laughs) That was actually, I think what you actually wrote me was your footnotes are gorgeous. And I think that was the single nicest compliment I've gotten on the book. So thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So we always start off with kind of a biographical question. We ask, how did you come to academia? And then how did you come to this topic specifically? Okay, so the story of how I came to academia is not a very exciting one. I think typical of many academics. I finished college, tried to work at a regular job for a year, um, and discovered that I just missed studying and learning in a structured way very badly, um, and that I had to go back. So I decided to pursue a subject that I'd studied as an undergraduate and really loved, which was medieval Jewish exegesis. Um, And if that makes me sound pretty naive, I was. I I don't think I necessarily understood what I was signing up for professionally. Um, I had a clear intellectual vision, not so much a professional one. Um, But by the time I'd finished, my intellectual vision had changed. So as you'll notice, I don't do medieval Jewish exegesis. Um, But I'd also developed a much better sense of what I was doing and why. As for the topic, um, so this actually began as my dissertation, which was originally supposed to be a history of childhood in medieval Egypt. Um, 
And I came to that topic in a couple of different ways. Um, I had my first child just after I started graduate school. Um, and so I was very actively thinking in a general way about cultures of childhood, how people relate to children in different historical contexts, how children's lives are organized. Um, and this was on my mind as I was casting about for a dissertation topic. Um, and I was increasingly becoming interested in doing something in social history rather than intellectual history. Um, and I happened at that time to read Philippe Arguet's Histories of Childhood, um, which is a very famous, you know, somewhat widely discredited, but still fascinating book. Um, and at the same time, I'd just taken a course on the Geniza and a light bulb just kind of went off in my head. And I thought this would make a fantastic study, you know, do the history of childhood in the Geniza. Um, adolescence and female adolescence was originally supposed to be the first half of the first chapter of this book. So I figured if I'm writing about childhood, I have to figure out what childhood is. I have to figure out when it ends. Um, so I was going to, you know, figure out sort of when both girls and boys become adults. Um, and I just got stuck on that question, because once I started thinking about it, it opened up, you know, a gigantic array of very basic questions that I hadn't realized when I started, hadn't yet been answered and needed to be answered. So like very flat footed things like how do dowry transfers work and how do people figure out who they're going to marry? Um, so the topic kind of first narrowed down to female adolescence and then eventually opened up much wider to bigger questions that have nothing to do with childhood, but are just as big, such as the nature of kinship, the nature of law, um, that I had no idea I'd be asking when I first started working on this. So how do all these topics intersect? I guess, sort of, can you give me a rundown of the book in, let's say, 150 words? Yes, I can. At least I can try. Um, so the book uses a huge corpus of everyday documents um, preserved in the Geniza, which were produced by Jews in medieval Egypt and Syria. Um, and I use them to understand how women became adult members of society in this particular time and place, how they acquired property, how they got married, how they became new wives in a household, how they moved around in public space, and so on, um, which also means understanding the two institutions that mattered particularly to these women's lives the family, and the complicated Jewish legal system that governed their property and marriages. So the book opens with two chapters that give big scale arguments about both these institutions um, and then carries them out to the more specific topic of female adolescence throughout. Um, and I think that I'm over 150 words, but I'll very briefly <laughs> tell you my big arguments about the family and about religious law. Um, so first, I argue that contrary to what's commonly assumed about the pre-modern Middle East, families did not operate in this period as monolithic clams clans, excuse me, also not as clams, <laughs> uh, but as something more like patronage networks that women in particular depended on. Um, as for Jewish law, I argue that it married, mattered to Jews' lives in a very concrete way because everyone in this period, from Jews themselves to officers of the Fatimid state, expected it to. So the idea of religious communities governed by religious law was central to the Islamic social order. So one thing when I was reading the book, but also when I was writing the little biography that I introed you with, which I think I lifted mostly from your Princeton department uh, <laughs> profile, um, was that you work on the 10th to 13th century Islamic Eastern Mediterranean. And I really like the way you put that because I think, um, well, first off, that's, I mean, you have Egypt in the title, but also I think the book does a really good job of explaining how communities in Egypt were connected elsewhere and that Egypt wasn't sort of this one box that the Jews of Egypt lived in and they couldn't sort of get out. You, you see how they're, you're really good at highlighting these intellectual and these social connections just sort of with the drop of the hat. And you're just like, oh, that makes sense. Um, so the setting of the book, um, 
why the specific setting? Was it constricted by your sources or was there a more, I don't know, did you find something more methodological? Was there something else that drew you to that specific period? Right. So, I mean, the honest answer is that the setting was determined by the sources. um, And I have a, you know, a lot of material in in the introduction explaining how you can write a history for such a kind of vast chronological and regional span. Um, All that said, I mean, the setting, the sources are fantastic in part because the setting is so vibrant. Um, So I guess I'll say a few words about the setting um, in general and then talk about um, how it works in my book in particular. Um, So the Islamic Eastern Mediterranean is a way of capturing, you know, more or less the Fatimid and Ayyubid empires after the Fatimid conquest of Egypt in 969. So it goes, you know, a little earlier than that, but basically 969 to 1250. Um, And my main focus is on Egypt and Syria, although I also have some material coming from North Africa, from the Maghreb, and a bit from Fatimid Sicily. Um, So I think I'll backtrack a bit and just talk a bit about um, how this world came to be, which will help explain what it looked like in the period um, that my book starts in. Um, So, you know, very, very Basic, in the 7th century, the Middle East becomes politically unified for the first time as a result of the Arab conquests. Um, Under the Umayyads and the Abbasids, um, you have this vast region that's politically unified um, in which there's a great deal of travel, travel, trade, um, urbanization, so people are moving into cities. And as more and more people across the region are coming into contact with each other, um, a few major wide-scale social cultural changes are happening. So there's mass linguistic and religious conversion. So Arabic becomes a widely spread spoken language as well as a high literary language shared by, you know, everyone in this region um, up to Iran. And you also have large scale Islamization. Um, And what develops alongside these changes is a high literary culture in Arabic and other languages um, that affects Muslims, of course. I mean, this is the period of the development of Islam. Um, But it also affects other religious communities who are elaborating and interpreting um, the intellectual, religious heritage and traditions that they've inherited from late antiquity in new ways in writing. Um, So my book picks up sort of after three centuries of these massive, wide-scale social and cultural changes. After all of this has happened, and right after the unified Abbasid Caliphate, which had held this whole region together politically, um, has disintegrated. And so several successor states um, arise. Arguably, the most important are the Fatimids, who are ruling over Egypt and Syria in this period, um, are extremely thriving and prosperous. So this is a very wealthy, cosmopolitan, vibrant, complex empire that's internally connected, but that's it's also globally connected um, via the Mediterranean to, Byz- to the Byzantine amp- Empire in Europe, by the Indian Ocean to India. Um, there's a lot of things going on inter- that are very, very interesting within the empire itself. So it's ruled um, by Shi'is over a population that, you know, is mainly the Muslims in Egypt are mainly Sunni. Um, there's a huge Christian population, possibly a demographic ma- majority in Egypt. Um, and in the period covered by the book, there are other major historical events that happen. So, um, you know, there's the Seljuk invasion of Syria, there's the Crusades, which eventually lead to the downfall of the Fatimids and the Ayyubid takeover of Egypt, um, who put in place a Sunni regime. Um, And by the very end of the period covered my book, we're in the same world, but in some ways very different. So for example, there's an explosion of Sufism in Egypt that happens in the last decades of the evidence that I look at. Um, So this is a very, very, you know, complex 
interesting period with a lot of things going on. Um, in some ways, from you know, a kind of grand historical perspective, um, this setting is an ideal microcosm of the medieval Middle East um, in terms of politics, in terms of religion, in terms of society. There is a lot here um, to work with <laughs> in terms of ideas. Um, all of that said, what drew me to this particular time and place um, were the sources. So my greatest interest as a historian is really in understanding the ordinary and understanding ideas and institutions um, that don't necessarily float up to the surface of grand historical, political, religious narratives, either medieval ones or modern ones, um, but that nonetheless were incredibly historically important, that actually determined you know, huge aspects of how people lived and understand their own lives, understand the world they were living in, understood their own deaths. Um, that's what's really what is of kind of enduring interest to me as a historian. Um, and the Geniza, which I think you're about to ask me about, um, is a unique source base for understanding those kinds of questions. And so what drew me in were these sources. Um, and like with anything, once you start working with it, you fall in love more and more um, with the context. So the historical context is of great interest to me now, but originally it was because of the documents more than anything else. You know, I love that. And I can kind of now see the trajectory you've been on. You started with sort of high intellectual culture, sort of Jewish exegesis. Um, and then you moved on to this. And, and that very much ties everything together that you came to this point where you, I mean, I think that the ideas of, so I'm, I'm in a similar position. I came from originally thinking I was going to work on Quranic exegesis, um, commentaries in the Quran. But then I decided that I was going to work on newspapers I mean, my roommate is always telling me that I read newspapers. She's like, when she was introducing me to her family, she said, oh, this is Nadira. She reads newspapers. She collects them. She goes all over the world and she collects old newspapers. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but I mean, that's what, I mean, that's the, that's the great thing. I mean, the, what interested me was these ideas that just, that shape how people live and how they think. And I wanted to understand that, especially because these sources are so important to us in the modern period right now. Um so it's also fun to see that you you have a love of those sources. And I, I think that you have a particularly great repository of sources. And I'm going to ask you about the Geniza because I remember when I was introduced to the Geniza, it, I was introduced to it um, by uh, Alicia, Alicia Russ Fishbane mm -hmm. uh, in an undergraduate class. And I was the only person in that class. And he just, he knew I was Muslim and he just looked at me and he was like, well, you know how in Islam you can't like just throw away a piece of paper that has the name of God on it? And I was like, Yeah. And then he told me the story of the Cairo Geniza. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And I wish more Muslims had done that because we would have had a lot more sources. <laughs> so can you tell us about the Cairo Geniza? Yes. Um, okay. So the Geniza, um, as you've noted, is an accidental source base. It's this giant collection of papers that were, quote unquote, discovered in the late 19th century in a room in a synagogue in Cairo. Um, and I say, quote unquote, discovered because the local Jewish population knew that this room was there um, and it wasn't a surprise, but it was discovered by Western scholars for the first time. Um, and it was this room in which papers had been discarded, um, thrown away, but kept you know, kind of in storage for over a thousand years. Um, and the most well-known popular explanation for this is exactly what you just said, that there's this Jewish taboo on throwing away papers that have um, sacred writing on them, that have the name of God written on them. And so that this was um, a depository where people put papers like that. Um, 
the Geniza itself actually never explains itself. So there is no Geniza document or actually any other text that we know of that talks about this room or what it was for. Um, and a lot of these papers don't have sacred writing on them. Um, they don't have sacred Jewish writing on them or sacred writing of any kind. So um, I think it's a good explanation. It's compelling, but I do want to add a question mark to it because we're not actually 100% sure why these papers were put there. Um, the other big question is why the patterns of deposit that exist. So there's a huge, huge corpus from you know, the Fatimid and Ayyubid periods, then it completely dries up. Um, and then there's a smaller corpus from the 15th, 16th centuries, and then a kind of trickle down through the 19th century. Um, most of the corpus are literary manuscripts. So actually fragments of literary manuscripts. So usually you don't have an entire book, you have a few pages of a book. Um, nonetheless, these included, you know, enormous quantities of works that had been lost to history that have proven hugely important for intellectual history. And actually, the first people who discovered the Geniza were mostly interested in this intellectual material. So, you know, copies of texts that were later found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, a copy of the Hebrew version of Ben Sira, which had been lost, um, works of philosophy and theology and science and rabbinic literature um, that existed, you know, either in variant versions or didn't exist at all. Um, but within this enormous mass of literary material, there are also about 30,000 everyday documents, um, things like letters, legal records, mostly from the Fatimid and Ayyubid periods, um, which are called the documentary Geniza. And that's the material that I work with. Um, and so in general, I should just note that documents are better preserved in Egypt um, than anywhere else in the pre-modern Middle East. So we know more through documents about the social history of Egypt, you know, from the Ptolemies through late antiquity, um, than any other probably place in the ancient world. Um, but even in this context, a very, very rich document, and that's for reasons of climate, um, that documents are preserved better there. Um, but even within this context, the Geniza is unique um, in, two, in a few different ways. So first of all, it's extremely dense in the sense that you have a lot of material from an interconnected population. So you have people and institutions that pop up and again and again across the material, but also varied. So they pop up across a range of different types of documents. And the documents themselves are often very well preserved compared to other documentary corpora. So it really gives you a kind of uniquely rich snapshot of life during these centuries of how things worked, um, which makes it, you know, extremely compelling uh, for social history compared to almost any other field that I can think of. So I guess I want to ask you now, um, what happened afterwards? What were the documents now? How can people access them? Because it's such a rich corpus. Yeah. So the documents were all removed from Egypt. Um, and the story of that is a whole history in and of itself. And there's a really excellent book, Sacred Trash, that was written on it a couple of years ago. Um, they were taken out um, and unfortunately, often not in a very systematic way. Um, so there are things that have been called Geniza documents that not didn't actually necessarily come from the Geniza. Um, but at this point, they are housed in quite a number um, of different libraries and private collections actually around the world. Um, but the largest collect single collection of documentary material um, is in Cambridge. There's also a large collection at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. Um, and probably most important for all of us have now almost all, about 90% or maybe even more, have been scanned um, and uploaded to the internet. So there is a wonderful website called the Friedberg Geniza Project, which is available at jewishmanuscripts.org, um, where you can go and actually see 
over 90% of the Geniza um, in high-resolution digital images. Um, the Princeton Geniza Project, which I'm involved with, also has a robust corpus of transcriptions and descriptions of many of these documents. Um, so you can use those side by side to access and understand the documents. So what about the documents you were specifically drawing on for this? Because like, it's, like as you've mentioned multiple times over the course of this interview, it's such a rich project that I can imagine you needed different types of documents to do it. Yeah. So this was, I mean, one of the big challenges of writing this dissertation and then book was simply finding the relevant material. It was like looking for needles in a haystack. So there is no single genre of young women's documents. I mean, with one exception, which are documents pertaining to marriage, um, which involve brides and which give you a lot, a lot of information about women who are entering. You can identify which women are entering marriage for the first time. Um and so that is one genre that I used a lot. But I also scanned as much as I could of the rest of the documentary Geniza. And I certainly missed things because I was relying on incomplete catalogs on the kind of relatively small percentage of material that's been published um, or cataloged in some way that I could find, you know, find it as relevant to my project. Uh, but I looked at everything from commercial letters, family letters, petitions that people submitted asking for charity help, petitions that people submitted asking for legal help to um, Jewish communal officials or even to Fatimid state officials, um, and a huge array of legal documents. So most importantly, as I said, legal documents about marriages, but also legal documents about divorce, about other kinds of property transfers, um, wills and things like that. Um, so this project is very, very eclectic. And it also, as I said, spans a very wide range of time and space, which methodologically was a problem, which I had to deal with in a lot of different ways to try not to conflate, you know, things that are happening in very different historical contexts as all belonging to one, you know, monolithic reality, uh, but rather to try to understand what things actually did endure in a stable way throughout this period and which things didn't, and also try to identify regional differences. Um, all of that can be very, very difficult, as you might imagine, when you're already dealing with such an enormous, but also fragmentary base of sources, looking at a topic that the sources themselves are not particularly interested in telling you about. Um, so that was a huge methodological challenge. No, that's something that's very interesting to me is how we keep track of concepts and words that change over time even. And you sort of just alluded to that. And I think one of the words that you're, I mean, the introduction, you sort of lay down all your cards and you tell us, well, in many ways, this is a family history, but don't think of families as the same way. In many ways, this is a history of adolescence, but don't think of adolescence as, you know, teenagers <laughs> in the modern day and age. So, right. How are the terms different? Okay, so um, I'll start with the family. Um, so the main argument that the book makes about this, uh, about the family, um, is that families operated more as networks comprised of one-on-one -on -one relationships between particular um, relatives, um, rather than as a kind of predictable uniform group or clan. So I argue that there was a strong sense of kinship in this period um, between relatives, that people could choose to deploy their kinship relations with other relatives or choose not to deploy them. So for example, choose to live with each other, choose to support each other financially or socially. Um, and at the level of terminology, that is evident in the way that people address each other in letters, sometimes in specific words that are deployed for kinship. Um, but on the other hand, the family um, as a kind of corporate group that endures over time in a solid way um, is really absent from this material. And I tried to argue that 
both looking at not just terminology, but also formulae. So how people address each other and invoke their relationships. Um, and there really is no appeal to the corporate family um, in my material. But I also tried to do it quantitatively using a kind of very rudimentary, elementary attempt at demographics. Um, rudimentary and elementary because the material is just not abundant or systematic enough to do anything else. Um, but I looked at marriage contracts to try to extract certain demographic markers. So for example, how many girls entered a first marriage with a father who was already dead? Um, how many women married more than once in the course of their lifetime? How do people um, make household arrangements in legal contracts that show you that? Um, and what I concluded from all of that is that the family um, as a kind of pragmatic unit, both in terms of how people are living in households and people are, how people are connecting to each other socially, um, was very, very varied. And that very few people would have grown up in a multi-generation household with a male member of the oldest generation. So the kind of classic patriarchal clan model that's often been assumed for the pre-modern Middle East, um, that that simply wouldn't have been demographically impossible on top of the fact that it's not something that is ever alluded to in the documents and that people seem to be talking about kinship in a very different way. Um, so that's the family. Um, as far as adolescence goes, there is no, you know, <laughs> kind of emic, emic or emic, I always mess it up, emic concept of adolescence um, in my documents, except in a very narrow legal sense. So there is no term that people are using colloquially to talk about adolescence. There are some technical legal terms um, that do apply to a very particular phase of women's lives between puberty and first marriage um, in Jewish law. Um, and so that made it actually a really interesting topic for me to try to tease out the differences between this technical legal category and the kind of free-floating, not necessarily clearly articulated ideas, but also structures that existed surrounding adolescence. Um, so a lot of the literature on pre-modern pre adolescence is thinking about how adolescence worked as a life stage. You know, did ancient or medieval people have the concept of adolescent rebellion and things like that? Um, none of that is evident when it comes to women in the Geniza. You don't see that at all. But what you do see are very kind of basic concrete things about how women's lives are managed um, in this period, which are distinctive and which make a very interesting contrast with what the legal sources tell us about how things should work. So one thing that surprised me when I was reading the book were there, there are all these instances where you speak about women's independence and how women function in terms of property or in terms of marriage that I was very struck by partially because it differed so dramatically from Islamic law. And one thing that I sort of very casually talk about with my um, friends who are deep in sort of um, Jewish legal history is how similar the laws can be at times. Um, yes. And whether or not that's an issue of contact or, I mean, that's, that's a whole other question. I mean, like, I think I mentioned to you before the interview, I have one friend in particular who we tend to go out for coffee and just talk about menstrual law for no apparent reason, <laughs> other than that it's interesting. Oh, it's one, it's relevant to everyday life. So, um, I, I just, I, I want to hear more about how women operated independently of men, because that seemed to be a fundamental difference between Islamic law and Jewish law and in what ways they couldn't. Right. Okay. So there's a legal answer to this and there's a social answer to this. Um, and I think, so the legal answer to this is um, that in 
Jewish law, <laughs> bizarrely, the one period of a woman's life when she is not only allowed but has to operate independently is adolescence. Um, socially, that's not what happened at all. Even though the kind of technical ways in which property was transferred and marriages were arranged, et cetera, um, in our documents closely accords with Jewish law. So these are not documents that are violating Jewish laws surrounding um, this model at all. Um, but socially, you know, what I found very strongly is that first marriage was actually a major turning point in women's lives, um, that that's how people came of age, women came of age um, through and after first marriage, which is actually much closer to the Islamic legal model. Um, and so socially, it seems that these Jews are living in a reality that looks more like what we would expect from looking at Islamic law, even though technically they're following Jewish law very, very closely. Um, I should add one caveat to this, which is that we really do not have clear Geniza evidence for never married women. Um, so we don't know what happens to a woman who's 30, 40 years old and has never married. Um, these women, I'm not saying they didn't exist, but they're invisible in our sources. So that's just a big question mark. Um, however, among women that we do know about, so I'm going to shift now to the social answer, um, what I found is that one once a woman is married, um, she can and often does operate independently in several senses. So women could operate independently of their husbands and could even sue to divorce them um, through complicated legal mechanisms, which actually resemble each other very closely in both Jewish and Islamic law. Um, women could also move away um, and have nothing to do with their own male relatives. Um, but this was seen as undesirable, actually. So in answering this question, um, I think we have to separate independence, um, which was for women seen by men and women who appear in these documents often as precarious and bad, <laughs> um, and a woman's agency, the scope that she had to act. Um, so one of the main arguments that I make in the book um, in talking about these kin connections that I argue um, were kind of the central thing holding families together um, were crucial for women in a way that they weren't for men, that they kind of resembled the patronage relationships that a lot has been written about in the medieval Middle East that existed between men um, and that worked patronage relationships worked to bind people together and animate all sorts of different institutions from trade to politics to law. Um, my conclusion is that at least in the Geniza documents, women did not have access to any of those forms of patronage except through kinship. So that um, women who maintained kin ties, which somewhat resembled patronage ties with either men or women that they were related to, um, were supported in a way that women without kinship ties didn't. Um, so a woman who has no male relatives, um, you know, involved with her at all is completely independent, but that can actually be a a disastrous thing. So the book actually opens with a story of this woman who's wandering around Syria, you know, with a three-year-old desperately trying to get help because her relatives aren't speaking to her. She can't find her husband. Her husband's relatives aren't speaking to her. So this woman is independent and in a completely ruinous situation. Um, and even women who, you know, had property but didn't have these kind of kinship ties um, led difficult lives in some ways. So there's this very, very famous case of, um, a woman well-known, you know, among the tiny cohort of Geniza scholars who was very, very wealthy, but also, um, you know, led a kind of uh, not normative life and had a child with a man that she married only in Islamic court, not in Jewish court. Um, and she had social problems of various kinds. So even she's kind of the test case for like a woman who has, you know, a tremendous amount of property and social power in some ways, but is not well integrated into a network of people who approve of what she's doing. Um, and you can see that 
for her, this was a very difficult thing. Um, on the other hand, women who did have strong kinship connections, especially if they also were wealthy, um, they didn't have independence in the sense that they could operate alone, um, but within the context of the social networks and the family networks that support them, they could have a tremendous amount of agency. So they can buy and sell property. They can make decisions about where they want to live. They can, I don't know, make decisions about supporting a slave that they've grown attached to or who they want their daughters to marry. Um, and they have the power to do those things with the approval and the support of the people surrounding them. Um, so in, in this way, I kind of think the women who seem best off in this material don't necessarily have independence. They're very, very firmly embedded um, in a network of kin who are likely constraining their actions in some way, and yet they have more agency than women who are alone. So I think one of the big tasks of history is trying to figure out where, well, I feel like maybe I'm just thinking about this as a graduate student right now, is there are certain <laughs> stories you can't tell. Like, you just, you don't yeah. have the sources. <laughs> and you can't I, I, I like you can't agency is another big question and you can't give someone agency with some of the sources, even though these figures are represented in what you're writing. So, and, and you mentioned this at some point, you mentioned that you can't necessarily recover all of these voices. And I think you're very careful to point that out throughout the book and very conscious of the fact that this is a book about adolescence, but it's not necessarily from these women's mouths. Um, so I want to ask you, to what extent can we recover? It's a bit of an idealist question, I apologize. But um, to what extent can we recover voices? And then to what extent are voices lost? So those two halves. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a great question. And it's something that I thought a lot about while writing the book, because really – what would be wonderful is if I had been able to write a book about what adolescent girls thought and said, um, or even what they did, you know, on a typical day. And I don't have any of that information. Um, so, you know, the Geniza documents include a lot of quotations or even in letters, you know, direct narrative that sound like people's own voices. Um, when it comes to something like a merchant letter that was written by the merchant himself, which we know because we have his handwriting from, you know, 100 letters, we can be pretty, pretty confident that this is his voice. <laughs> um, when it comes to women's letters, which there are in the Geniza, um, the question is much more complicated because many of those letters were written by scribes for a woman. Um, legal documents often cite women and what sounds like a kind of vernacular, but um, my colleague Odette Zinger has done some really wonderful work looking at those legal documents that cite women and looking at how they're very, very clearly cast in certain ways by the court scribe writing them to portray these women in a particular way. Um, and when it comes to adolescent girls, we don't even have that. So I, I only have one document that I found in the entire corpus that is actually speaking in the voice of an unmarried adolescent girl. And it's a very short petition, again, clearly written by a scribe. Um, so it's very difficult to really hold on to anything that you can pinpoint as the voice of any of my subjects. Um, however, what I think is an achievable goal and is equally important is that you can recover the scripts, so to speak, or the grammar and language in which people's voices <laughs> would have expressed themselves, um, and not necessarily the scripts that women use, you know, in the privacy of their living chambers by themselves with no men around, um, because there are no documents that reflect that. Uh, but you do have the scripts that were officially recorded, you know, when people went into court or when people wrote letters to each other. And those tell you a tremendous amount, too. They tell you a lot about the kind of basic ideas, conceptions, um, ideas about how you ought to express yourself, how feelings work, how relations between people work, um, that governed how the people in this time and place would have spoken. So unfortunately, I don't think I was really able to recover 
voices, but I was able to recover, I hope, um, the contexts and rules that would have governed people's voices. So yeah, I'll go back to the word scripts. Um, so we've sort of talked about the flip side of this, sort of how women function independently. And you commented, of course, um, that independence isn't this positive term um, in quite the same way that we think of it um, in today's sense of it. But I want to ask you about patriarchy. How does patriarchy function? Does it is it is it an appropriate word to use in these cases? Yeah, I think it. I think it absolutely is. Um, so this is a society that um, absolutely has an overriding patriarchal system. Um, what's interesting, though, is that that patriarchy does not necessarily function in the way that we might expect. Um, so, for example, um, people are not, as I've said, living in big family groups controlled by an actual patriarch. <laughs> um, instead, you know, when it comes to the family, you're dealing with a heavily gendered system of kinship that's patriarchal, and that women simply have very gender-coded and limited options as compared to men. Um, and another example that I haven't mentioned, so I'll talk about it now, um, I, it's, it's present in the book, and I'm actually hoping to write a longer article devoted to this, um, is that there's this very widespread idea in anthropological and historical scholarship um, that Mediterranean societies, you know, writ large, often have honor-shame complexes, which are bound up in men policing their female relatives' sexuality. Um, so, like, you know, <laughs> honor and shame patriarchy, so to speak. Um, and what I found in my documents is that that model is almost entirely absent. So there's no special emphasis on safeguarding women's virginity before marriage, um, which isn't to say that women weren't virgins before first marriage. They probably were, but it's not something that is, you know, a point of big social focus. Um, women's movements could be heavily constrained. So some women practice seclusion and it seems, you know, barely went out of the apartment buildings that they lived in at all. Um, but that seems to be much more a matter of class than of sexual policing. Um, the effect is the same. <laughs> um, for reasons of gender, certain women are not able to move about in public space, but the ideas surrounding it are not those that we might expect. So honor and shame is not invoked in order to explain why women are kept indoors. Instead, it's seen as a mark of social honor that um, adheres to women of a particular social class. Um, also, when it comes to supporting women, so supporting one's female relatives, um, terms denoting honor are invoked. Um, but you don't have that surrounding sex. So this is a patriarchy, but it is not the kind of, you know, stereotypical, classical, pre-modern Middle Eastern patriarchy that you might sort of think of if you hear that word as applied to this historical setting. So one thing I also appreciated the book, and I know I mentioned this sort of on a spatial level, where you bring in all of these different locales, sort of, I mean, what you call the Eastern Islamic Mediterranean, um, and these connections, and I think you get a vague sense of how, I think in addition to getting this history of adolescence, you also get this um, sort of uh, subconsciously you absorb this history of all these different connections. It's a very good introduction, I think, in some sense, to what... Um, like 10th to 13th century Eastern Mediterranean Jewish society looks like you constantly reference Islamic law as well. And it just sort of slips in every now and then. Um, and you compare it to Jewish law. And I really appreciated that because I think it betrayed, I, I mean, that in a positive sense, a, a familiarity with Islamic law that must not have been easy to acquire um, because Jewish law as it is, is very intricate and, and, and clearly you're a master of it. So, what does Islamic law tell us about Jewish law during this period, and I guess vice versa? 
Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the nice words. Um, and second of all, yeah, you're right. I mean, finding the Islamic legal parallels um, was much more of a challenge for me than covering the Jewish law, which I've been much more intensively trained in. Um, and I'm sure there are some that I missed. Um, but why did I do it? So there's a couple of things that Islamic law can tell us about Jewish law um, in this setting. So first of all, as you already mentioned, um, the two systems share a lot of very common concepts and vocabulary um, that are, however, often developed in slightly different ways. So they belong to an obviously shared conceptual universe, and yet the end results look, you know, like if you're familiar with one legal system, it's like looking at the others, like looking at a kind of funhouse mirror. Like I recognize this, but it looks odd. <laughs> um, so for my book, um, this matters for a couple of different reasons. So first of all, Islamic law is, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's the system that is most centrally recognized by the state. And it's also um, the legal culture that is most common and most understood as a kind of default, even if it, Muslims are not necessarily a demographic majority in Egypt in this period, um, Islam is still the social, legal, and state-supported, you know, common default. And so it brings out what was specific and particular to Jews, um, simply looking at that, um, at the commonalities and differences. Um, on a much more pragmatic level, Jews developed courts in this period and legal practices um, along with and in response to Islamic practice. So Jews are using Islamic courts as well as Jewish courts in this period. They know how things are done there. Um, and so in terms of actual legal practice, um, understanding how Jewish legal models are being used in Jewish courts, you often have to understand what the Islamic legal context is as well. Um, so it's both as a kind of comparative foil um, that also has social relevance. And in terms of actually what is happening in Jewish law, sometimes it directly matters. Um, finally, there are some cultural concepts that show up in Islamic legal discourse that don't show up in Jewish legal discourse, but that once you understand them, you can see things in the documents that you can't otherwise see. So cultural ideas that are kind of captured in Islamic legal texts. Um, and then once you know them, you can understand certain terms or certain practices and documents much better. Um, so for all of those reasons, it was necessary and useful for me to do the work to include the Islamic legal context. Um, all of that said, if I had the book to write over again and an infinite capacity to learn new languages, I really wish that I had done more to look at Christian material as well. Um, that is something that, you know, I wasn't linguistically equipped to do and scholarship that would have helped me is only just sort of starting to emerge in an accessible way. So there's this wonderful book that just came out on Syriac marriage law, um, which I consulted, you know, but I couldn't look at any of those sources directly. So another question vaguely related to this one is, I think, I mean, this is different for the modern and the pre-modern period. And I just want to articulate that as a, as a just highlight that. Um, what terms would you use to, and this takes us a bit away from the book. What terms do you use to describe the world of your period? I mean, I noted you used the Islamic Eastern Mediterranean, which I really appreciated, but then there's also the Islamic hate world, the Islamic world, the Muslim world. And yeah. I mean, increasingly, especially for the modern period, there are implications, political implications for how right. you use each term. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to touch um, the modern implications, but just from the perspective of medieval history, um, I did use the term Islamicate, um, which is a term that was coined by Marshall Hodgson to describe um, cultures and societies that are shaped in fundamental ways by Islam, um, but that include many people who aren't Muslims and don't see themselves as Muslims. So it's a somewhat awkward coinage that some people do not like. Um, I happen to find it very useful for my purposes. Um, so 
I should just say, um, I do not like the term when you're talking about the entire society and not the actual religious or intellectual tradition, Islamic history all that much. So, you know, no one calls medieval European history, Christian history, for example. So um, I tried to stay away from that term um, and to instead use Middle Eastern history or, you know, geographically specific, you know, um, as you say, the Islamic Eastern Mediterranean for the whole region, or if I'm talking about something under the Ubids or Fatimids, then name the actual dynasty. Um, But when I was talking about cultural and social norms, um, I do like Islamicate. Um, And the reason is that it underscores the central role that Islam really did play in creating and holding together the coherent cultural world that I see in my documents. Um, But I can't just use the word Islamic to denote this. Um, You know, unless you take (laughs) the recent book, um, What is Islam to its furthest logical conclusion and, you know, talk about Islamic Jews. But, you know, the, the people I'm writing about would not have understood that terminology as well. So they were very conscious of themselves as non Muslims. And so to talk about their world, Islamicate, for me, is very useful. So to return to the sources for for a moment, and I think you've sort of alluded to this uh, throughout, what couldn't the sources tell you? And I guess I want to fold into that question. How does one make educated guesses? Because you're very good at articulating, again, where you're making a guess. You're very, you don't sort of assume the the mantle of, 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 I don't know, some haughty intellectual who's like, well, this is this because of this. You actually articulate in the book that you're making an assumption. So, right. Again, what couldn't the source tell you and how do you make educated guesses responsibly, I guess, too? Right. So, I mean, I have, for this particular topic and for many other topics like it, working with this documentary source base, um, there are two huge limits that I can think of. One is that there are certain things that I would have really liked to know, that I'm sure my readers would have really liked to know, that I just do not know and the documents don't tell me. Um, I think I mentioned this already, but like the most kind of painful one for me was just not being able to visualize what these girls or the women that they would grow into actually did with their time all day long. (laughs) So um, obviously women of different classes and in different regions lived differently, but even the most kind of basic questions about what day-to-day life actually looked like um, is just most most of that information is just not accessible. Um, And so unfortunately, that was really difficult. Um, Another major thing that the sources are difficult on, um, which I think I already alluded to as well, is parsing out when something is a kind of idiosyncratic practice or idea that this particular document is articulating and when it's normative and even more than that, when it's normative for a particular time and place versus ideas and institutions that really endured um, over the entire period I'm looking at or were really widespread over the period I'm looking at. Um, So the best educated guesses are when I can kind of grab hold of some very concrete concept or practice, um, usually, you know, when it's articulated in very stable ways Um, around a stable set of practices using a stable set of terms. And I can really see, you know, with a pretty high degree of confidence that the same thing is being talked about. Um, And I have a lot of evidence for it. That's the most comfortable. Um, The most uncomfortable is when I either have, you know, one data point (laughs) or a few data points that are all kind of different from each other. And I can't tell why. (laughs) Like, I don't know if, you know, for example, when it comes to um, economic models of the dowry, Some documents clearly are seeing the dowry as a form of long-term inheritance for women. Some documents are clearly seeing the dowry as a payoff to 
the groom so that he will marry the girl? Um, are these practices that simply coexisted side by side? Um, are they different in different regions at different times? Are they different amongst different social classes? Like I was ma- able to kind of make very tentative guesses about some of that, but not ever to really parse it out completely. So that's difficult. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I think looking looking at specific concrete terms and practices and how they're deployed in different contexts and how stable they are is the most comfortable thing. And in a way, that's why using legal sources was so, so helpful for me because um, they provide a constant control against which to measure how things are actually being used in the documentary material. So now this is a more practical sort of my inner organizational geek question. Um, what what does the research process look like? And I guess what I'm trying to get you to answer is sort of how did you deal with that many documents? Because I, yeah. I do intellectual history. I I take very, very, very weirdly detailed notes that involve quotes and things like that. And I just... I feel like there's so much I could learn from you and how you dealt with your huge corpus of sources. I mean, first off, how many do you think you had? So this is a good question. Um, So I think I'm not going to remember the exact numbers, but in the quantitative analysis that I do, I had, I don't know, something between three and 400 marriage contracts that I used for quantitative analysis. Um, But the qualitative analysis, the documents that I'm actually citing, um, I really should have at some point sat down and counted the individual shelf marks in my index, but it's definitely in the hundreds, um, possibly over a thousand, I'm not sure. Um, So how do I handle it? Yes, I have you know, kind of a lot of different MacGyvered systems held together by duct tape is the honest answer. And I'm starting on my second book now and I'm trying to do things better from the ground up. Um, But I have a couple of different, you know, sort of basic ways of keeping track of my material. Um, And really it boils down to different types of spreadsheets um, accompanied by different types of, you know, files of translated notes. So I have several very, very enormous spreadsheets um, that, hold documents of comparable types and that are classified in different ways. Um, So I actually, like, I have this big marriage document spreadsheet that I have a version of it that's classified by um, demographic information and a version of it that's classified by document type. Um, And then I put in, you know, a tremendous amount of information, stuff that I never ended up using because I wasn't sure what was going to end up being relevant. Um, Just poured it all into it. And when you have it all spread out like that, you can see connections that otherwise are going to remain either vague or entirely obscured. Um, But then, of course, you know, this isn't a work of quantitative analysis for the most part. It's also a work of um, qualitative analysis of passages, both documentary and, you know, from legal and literary texts. Um, And there, I think, you know, I don't have any great insights, but like everyone, I have, you know, many, many, many different types of files of everything from full translation accompanied by image and notes to, you know, files where I collected all the passages I could find that talk about, you know, a girl sort of a girl's vocational training. <laughs> and I just wrote out all of those passages. And then, you know, I use different colors a lot. Um, you know, <laughs> the information about the document accompanied by a header and a different color that tells me what I'm going to use this document to say. And then I, you know, cut and paste and play around with them. Um, but I should say that I'm involved with the Princeton Geniza Project um, with Professor Marina Rusto, who's the director of the Geniza Lab at Princeton. And we've done a lot of thinking over the last few years about how to build um how to build documentary databases in a way that information can be extracted from them and used by users on the site to many different 
um, purposes. So we've thought a lot about, you know, giving documents typologies versus tagging them for content. Um, and that's on a more public level when you're trying to handle um, an entire corpus and put it out for public consumption versus what every individual scholar will do um, with it. But I guess if I had one word of wisdom, you know, beginning the process, I have two. Don't use Excel. <laughs> use pages. <laughs> and, um, you know, put a lot of thought into your database design before you start, because I think I had to start over from scratch at least a half a dozen times in the course of doing this, and my databases are still a mess. So putting a lot of thought into the design when you're starting saves you a lot of trouble later on. Oh, I'm editing a chapter now where I'm going to start to put in more quantitative stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid of looking at the Excel files I built yeah. about a month ago. <laughs> Oh, I didn't mean pages. I meant numbers. Now, the problem with this ex with Excel is that sometimes, um, you know, it completely messes up your chart if you make one wrong click and like it reorganizes, you know, things oh, yeah. out of sync with each other. And it's just a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Then you lose like like all your data just gets, yeah, it gets misassigned. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So you mentioned your second book. What are you currently working on? What are your other projects in the mix? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'm right now. I will mention since you brought up menstrual law, I'm actually just about finished with an article um, on that's kind of a spinoff of the book. It's just a topic that I encountered while writing the book that didn't really have anything to do with the book. Was just so fascinating. I thought it would be a fun standalone article um, on this reform that the great. Jewish sage, uh, very famous philosopher and jurist Maimonides, who lived in Fustat um, in the late 12th century, um, he passed this decree trying to compel Jewish women in Egypt to follow rabbinic menstrual law, which they had not been doing up until that point. So I'm writing an article about that, um, about what these practices were that he was responding to and what actually happened in courtrooms after he passed this decree. Um, but after that, what I'm starting now is my second book. Um, and once again, I've had um, the experience of starting a book on one topic and then getting stuck on the first chapter. So I thought that I was going to be writing a history on Jewish courts in Egypt, um, you know, which is a history that I sort of begin in this book, but there's so much more to do with. Um, but where I started was the very earliest evidence for these courts in the 10th and 11th century, and it's now morphed into something different that does use the legal documents. But what I am ending up writing now is a social history of Jewish writing, um, again, in the Islamic Mediterranean, um, trying to understand why there's this huge outpouring of writing among Jews, crucially documents as well as literary works that spread across the entire Islamic Middle East, um, especially targeted toward the Mediterranean beginning in the 10th century, which from the perspective of Islamic literatures and Christian literatures is very late. Um, and so this is a topic that, you know, has not actually been looked at directly. And I think it's a major question. Um, and so that's what I'm starting on now. And it's it combines my, you know, <laughs> love of social history with my interest in intellectual traditions in a very nice way. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's good. Again, there's like a little, a full circle coming into play. <laughs> right. Well, con congratulations on the book. It's really, it's, it's, it's beautifully published. Like I mentioned, the footnotes are gorgeous. And then the text <laughs> itself is quite wonderful and easy to read and flows very wonderfully. So congrats. And then on all the prizes that you've been nominated and you've won. I mean, um, two prizes. But thank you very, very much. I really, really appreciate the kind <laughs> words. Um, and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. No, it hasn't. Um, and yeah, best of luck with your future endeavors. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.